John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Then we went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, abroad and hauled the, the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and um, so with the fish. This was the third time Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, son, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. And after saying this to him, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to begin with a little family folklore here. All of you have these, these family stories that sometimes as they get retold, it's hard to separate like what actually happened from kind of this urban legend that spins out of that. But the basic story is that um, we had this old family dictionary, and I can still picture it and where it was on the shelf in my dad's office, and I can picture the kind of orangey-brown color of the binding because uh, we didn't have internet when I was a kid, and you, you didn't go look stuff up on dictionary.com. You went to the dictionary. And the, the legend is that the word failure had been crossed out of the dictionary by one of my grandparents. And the implication was that our family didn't know that word, that uh, failure was not an option if you were a hand. So um, I'll fast forward. I'm just going to skip some things. I'll fast forward like approximately four decades and uh, just catch you up. I failed at countless things, including some very important things. So just erasing that word from our, from our lectionary did not, it turns out, alter my destiny. Um, we, we all failed, okay? We made a lot of mistakes. And that's important to realize as humans because what we're wrapping up this series with this morning 
As we talk about these Jesus encounters, we've talked about how Jesus encounters our busyness and he encounters our kind of legalistic judgmental tendencies and he encounters our grief and he encounters our fear and he encounters even our shame and our doubt and all that. But the problem is we're not just busy and scared and have questions. The reality is we fail. We make all kinds of mistakes. We make very, very minuscule mistakes that were like, oh, I blew it, that was bad, but it really has no impact on anyone. And you all know we make very big mistakes over really significant things. We all fall short of what God requires of us. We blow it, we sin. And the question is like, what then? And the story that we come to this morning is this story about how, how is Jesus going to interact with failure not only when it's this impersonal failure that's out there somewhere, but when that, that failure is deeply personal to Jesus and penetrates like his soul and his emotions because it's one of his best friends that fails him and fails him pretty colossally, okay? So what hope is there for failures? And, and I'd say what hope is there for failures knowing additionally, not just that we make mistakes and we fail, but knowing that God is perfectly holy and righteous and sees absolutely everything, knows absolutely everything. Nothing is hidden from him. So we come to this passage this morning and uh, we'll, we'll just have fun with this, but also look at what it's actually saying. So I have like five or six F's and I think this text is kind of arranged around these words. There's a failure, there's fish, there's fellowship, there's forgiveness and then there's following and feeding. So whether that's five or six things, this is kind of how the text is arranged, beginning with failure. And this is actually maybe not inherent in the text. It's maybe not explicit in the text if you didn't know the story. But I want to back up just a couple chapters to John 18. And you could even flip there in your Bible if you want to. And again, I'll just remind you that this Friday is Good Friday. And most of you, I think, have at least a basic familiarization with the story that basically on Good Friday, Jesus is betrayed by another disciple, Judas, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying. And the religious authorities lead the political authorities, including a portion of the Roman army, to arrest Jesus, to take him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, who is like, he's the highest religious authority. And there's this phony sham of a trial that night, in the middle of the night. And then Jesus gets passed off to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who oversaw the district that Jerusalem was a part of, because the religious authorities didn't have the authority to kill Jesus as they wanted to. So they get Pontius Pilate to condemn him and to crucify him. So all this is happening on this night. And this is kind of where our story begins. Because on this night, as Jesus is arrested, as Jesus is, is led away by these authorities, the Bible tells us that Peter actually followed so there's this scuffle in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter is following after that kind of tension, that hostility. He's following at a distance all the way, not just to the house of the high priest, but the Bible says he actually goes into the inner courtyard of Caiaphas' home and is warming himself by a fire where he's literally within earshot of this phony trial. So he is listening to what will become of Jesus. And I, I, I do want to begin there. Like, let's give credit where credit is due. 
Peter didn't just immediately abandon Jesus. He is following and he's trying to see and, and keep eye contact with Jesus and hear, like, how is this going down? What are they accusing Jesus of? But this is where everything goes wrong because as Peter kind of sees the handwriting on the wall of like, okay, I can see how this is going down. I can hear the false accusations, the lies, the slander that they are heaping up against my master, my friend. You know, in this moment, the little servant girl who had opened the gate to let Peter into the courtyard is like, hey, wait a second. I recognize you. You're, you're one of his friends. You're one of his disciples. This is John 18, 17. And Peter says, no, I'm not. I'm not his friend. I'm not his disciple. I, he's literally like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And a few moments later, someone else that's in that crowd, just kind of like all warming themselves around the fire. And you can just kind of picture it's the, the middle of the night, but there's like the little flicker of light kind of dancing off their faces. And this other person looks across that circle and is like, no, no, you are one of his disciples. And for a second time, Peter says, no, I am not. I don't know what you're talking about. And then sometime later, another man comes up to that fire and he's like, wait, you are one of his disciples because I saw you in the garden like just a little bit, of go, a little bit ago. Uh, you, you took up a sword against this servant and like lopped off his ear. And Peter, the gospels tell us, like not only denies it, but he starts swearing and he actually invokes a curse on himself. Like, let me be accursed if I know this man. I have nothing to do with him. And the Bible says, just then a rooster crows, and Peter remembers that Jesus had said, tonight before a rooster crows, you will betray me or you will deny me three times. And he looks, and the Bible says Jesus looks at him. They make eye contact. And Peter rushes off into the night just weeping with an intense grief that he has denied Jesus three times. So you know, I want you to imagine that for a moment before we just rush back to chapter 21. You imagine that Jesus is... He's not, he's not just Lord. You'll understand what I'm saying in a second. He's not just Lord. He's not just a rabbi or a miracle worker. This is like your best friend. You have done almost every moment for the last three years. I mean, you know the kind of friendship you can get on a camping trip? Well, they've been wandering all over the Judean wilderness and Galilee and Jerusalem and all over the map for basically three years camping out together. So these men know each other inside and out. And just hours earlier, you had the kind of courage to try to take a soldier's head off with your sword and presumably fight to the death. If that's the, if that's the destiny of Jesus, then you will go and die with him. And you're like, what happened in those moments that your courage just gets sucked out of you? And you're like, I don't even know the guy. I have nothing to do with him. And that's where the background of this story begins is with this stunning, shocking failure. And it's shocking on another level that Jesus like literally has left eternity and, and heaven and has condescended. He has humbled himself to become friends with a Galilean fisherman, like a nobody. And for years has associated with this Galilean fisherman and his family. And now in this moment of trial, this this nobody says, sorry, I don't even know the guy. Okay, well, 
I mean, we have this spoiler alert. We fast forward in the story. You all know Jesus went on to die. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. As we saw last week, Jesus went to his disciples as they're locked away in this inner room. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side. He talks with them. He eats with them. He proves, like, I've really conquered death. It's really me. He even commissioned them then to go in the power of the Spirit that would come and, and take this same good news God died for you. God rose for you. God forgives you. Take it to the ends of the earth. And then we come to our text. And in verse 3, we find that seven of the 11 living disciples have gathered together back in Galilee, this region north of Jerusalem. And Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the others went with him. And especially in your gospel community groups, I'd love for you this week to kind of like unpack, like what is his state of mind right then when he's like, I'm going fishing. Like Jesus said, do this, but like Jesus has gone somewhere else now. I'm going fishing. And you, you see this failure like kind of sitting on his heart and weighing on him. Like who am I that God would use someone like me? Okay, so that's failure. That, that brings us to fish, okay? So the text says they fished all night and caught nothing. Okay, we don't know how long they're out there or where they are. But they're, they're fishing all night. That's the, the main time that they would catch these big schools of fish swimming about in the Sea of Galilee. And as the sun begins to come up, there's this figure, this just shadow on a beach that, that kind of shouts out to them, children, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no. And this figure's like, then cast the net on the other side of the boat and you will find some. And, and they do, and all of a sudden they're into this big school of fish, and they can't even pull their nets back in. There's so much weight and so much tension on those ropes. And Peter's like, wait a second, I've seen this before. It's Jesus. And, and we get weirded out about that. Like, whoa, what was, like, how did they not recognize Jesus? And it's like, well, have you ever been hiking, and, like, there's that alpenglow, like, early, early in the morning, and you really can't make out anything. And as he's shouting out across the water, even like the sound of the waves and like, it's, it's not like this is clearly Jesus and they should have just known that. It's just a figure. But Jesus, Peter's like, man, this is clearly Jesus. So he puts on his overcoat and just throws himself in the sea and swims 100 yards to the shore and begins having a conversation while the rest of the disciples are pulling in this big school of fish in their nets, which the Bible says there's 153 of them. So pretty specific. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds of fish, okay? Fish. Why do I make a point about fish? It's because I want to I wanna pause here and just say, like, what's going on with the fish? Like, why, why the fish? Why does Jesus make a special point here about this? And a couple things I want you to note is that not only has Jesus returned to the site of one of his very first encounters with Peter, but Jesus is essentially reenacting that earlier meeting. Okay, and if you know this story and uh, the other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, tell us more about this story. But on that occasion, Jesus is kind of new on the scene as a rabbi. And he goes alongside the Sea of Galilee. And Peter and his, Andrew, his brother Andrew says are, are, they're kind of done fishing for the day. They're washing their nets. They're mending their nets so they can go back out the next day and have nets that will hold whatever fish they hopefully catch. And uh, this whole crowd of people has followed Jesus down to the seashore, and they're kind of crowding around him. And so Jesus kind of reaches out to Peter, 
And, and there's not much of a relationship there, but he's like, hey, can I get in your boat? And then Peter kind of like rows back away from the shore a little bit so that Jesus gets some space and there's kind of like more of a natural amphitheater so that Jesus can continue talking to these people and more people can hear him and be impacted by what he has to say. So somewhere in the middle of this discussion, Jesus teaches and then maybe the crowds go away or something. They're fishing again. They're not catching anything. And it's becoming daytime. And Jesus is like, hey, have you caught anything? No. Okay, well, we'll go back out again and put your nets down where I tell you to. And Peter has this like, come on, like carpenter from Nazareth. Now you're like an expert fisherman. You got like the little fish finder thing or something. But he obeys. And on that occasion as well, it says like all these people who had become disciples are suddenly into this big catch of fish. So much so that their nets are tearing and ripping and other boats are coming alongside just trying to salvage as many of these fish as possible. And Jesus follows that up with a more intimate conversation with Peter where he's like, okay, you see what I just did? He says, come follow me. He says, I want to make you a fisher of men, not just a fisher of fish. And Peter indeed left his nets, like left his reputation, whatever he had of one, and followed Jesus. So what are the 153 fish about here after the death, after the resurrection of Jesus? When Jesus comes back, I think it's like this simple. Jesus is taking Peter back to the beginning of their story together. And he's like, let's do this again. So remember, I'm the same God that put those fish in your nets the last time. I'm the same God who called you to follow me, knowing full well what you would do. I'm the same God who commissioned you to be one of my disciples, an apprentice of me, to bear my message to the world. So basically what he's saying is, Peter, I still feel the same way about you. I'm taking you back to the beginning of our story and I'm rehearsing what I said then and what I did then so you know I'm still really into you and I'm still calling you and empowering you to do this really special thing. And I picture it kind of like this to, to, to make an analogy of what the fish are about. I think it's something like this. Imagine there's this broken marriage that just after years and years of marriage and interactions, this couple has... I mean, whether they've just grown apart or whether they're just actively fighting with each other, just, and it's, it's gnarly, it's bad. But then one day, the husband goes to his wife and says, hey, I've made reservations at the restaurant where we first met. And I remember what you wore that night. And I remember what you ordered. Can we try this again? We know the pain that's between us, but... Can we go back there and start over? And that's the beauty of the fish, that if you didn't know, Jesus had already done this before. And then all the failure, all the pain, all the brokenness between them that should have separated them. But Jesus is like, I remember where we met. Can we go back there and start again? That's the fish. Okay, now thirdly, fellowship. Okay, so keep going in the story. So then, then all the disciples come in from this long night of fishing, and Peter goes out and helps them drag these fish ashore. Again, 153 of them. They're tired. They're hungry. But it says Jesus is over here making breakfast on the beach, which sounds awesome, you know, and he's got bread and fish, which doesn't necessarily sound awesome for breakfast. But anyway, that's, that's what he's doing. 
Um, what I think is interesting is it's possible there's some symbolism there because you may know that there were at least two prior occasions where Jesus did a miracle on the shore of the Sea of Galilee where he gave thousands and thousands of people bread and fish from like a little boy's lunch and just multiplied it and kept giving and giving and giving. So there may be something here about like, remember, I'm the same God that did that, provide. But I think the meaning is actually simpler than that because in Jewish culture, a shared meal was like a sign of acceptance and friendship. So when you're, when you're sharing a meal in this culture, especially if you're the one that prepared it and you're kind of playing host, you're not just sharing food, you're sharing your life. You're saying, I am, I am open to friendship. I am open to reconciliation with you. So what Jesus is doing here with the, with the meal, with the breakfast on the beach, is he's, he's basically, he's tracking down Mr. Failure. He's taking him back to the beginning of their story together. And Jesus is saying, you weren't a faithful friend to me, in essence, but I will always be a faithful friend to you. You will always be welcome at my table, Peter, because I love you with a steadfast love that will never give up on you. So he's extending this offer of restored fellowship. And then Jesus at this meal like strikes up, I think, what, what's one of the most poignant conversations in Scripture, which revolves around the fourth F, which is the word forgiveness or the concept of forgiveness. So this begins in verse 15, this, this kind of back and forth now between Jesus and Peter, also known as Simon. Um, and if you don't know, his name is Simon, and, P and Jesus gave him the name Peter, which is like rock, and says, like, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So you see Simon, sometimes you see Peter, sometimes you see Simon Peter, and it's, it's all the same guy. We call him Peter. So verse 15, like Jesus strikes up this conversation, says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And just to pause there, there's some speculation about, like, more, more than these. Like, what is that? Well, some people say he's like, Simon, do you love me more than these other disciples? And I actually, I don't think that's where Jesus is going. Because that would be, like, how, how would Peter know, first of all? Like, yes, I love you more than Andrew, more than John, more than Thaddeus. You know, he, he doesn't know. And I don't think Jesus is intending to stir up this same selfish pride that got Peter in trouble in the first place. He's not baiting him into something. So I think when he says, do you love me more than these? He's like, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Like you left these fish to follow me one time, but here you are back fishing. Like, do you love me more than you love these fish and this occupation and the lifestyle that it provides for you? Are you willing to walk away again? And Peter answers, still verse 15, he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, you don't see this in the text you're looking at, probably 99% of you, maybe 100% of you. But a lot has been made about the fact that in this back and forth conversation, John uses two different words for love to describe the conversation. So it, it would literally sound something like this. Peter, do you agapao me? And Peter says, well, I phileo you. And Jesus says, do you agapao me? And Peter says, 
like I said, I phileo you. And then Jesus says, Peter, do you even phileo me? And he says, yes, I phileo you. Okay. And one of these words is like agapao. It's like the love, the, the, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. It's the Jesus storybook Bible love that God has for his children. And then phileo, you may even know from like the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so people get into this and they're like, so, so what God is saying is like, Peter, do you love me the way I love you? And he's like, well, I love you like a brother. And he's like, no, no, no. What I'm asking is, do you love me the way I love you? And he's like, well, I love you like a brother. And then Jesus is like, do you even love me like a brother? And he's like, sure. Um, okay, so all of that is completely bogus. All throughout scripture, agapao and phileo are often used interchangeably, even of God's love for us. And the text, you'll notice, it doesn't say Peter was grieved because Jesus pressed him on the nature of his love. Like, is it agapao or is it phileo, Peter? Which is it? No, the text explicitly says Peter was grieved. Why? Because Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then it clicked. And Peter's like, Ah, I get it. I know what you're doing because I've just denied you three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. Like blankety blank, may a curse fall on me. I don't know him. And so it's easy to see what Jesus is doing in this context. He's saying, as you've denied me three times, Peter, I'm going to give you three opportunities to affirm your love for me. And I'm going to show you kind of like the heart of forgiveness. I'm not forgiving you because I wasn't aware of what you said. I know what you said. But Peter, you're no longer the man who denied me three times. You're the man who loves me. You're the man who receives my grace. You're the man who's transformed by that grace. And that brings us to the fifth point, the final point, which I call following and feeding. And you can break those off, and there's six Fs, and that's cool. But like these two go together, and it's important. Okay, So at verse 19... At the end of the section that we just read this morning, we find Jesus repeating what he'd said three years earlier, okay? You have this miraculous catch of fish. You have this meal on the beach. And then he's like, come follow me. Peter, follow me. And you're like, what is, what is Jesus inviting Peter to do? Because this time it's going to look different. The first time, he's literally like, come, follow me. Be with me. Be a disciple. Be an apprentice. Learn under me as anyone would learn under a rabbi. So it's a call to discipleship. But now, as we look forward in the story, Jesus is about to ascend back to the Father. He's going to be gone, but he's still like, follow me. And you know that the, the following is going to look different because Jesus isn't physically going to be there. But what it is, it's, it's, it's more a call to discipleship, like your call to discipleship and my call to discipleship, is we, we can't literally like walk around Palestine with Jesus and listen to his words and see his miracles. But we're all called. Like, he's like, come and pattern your life after mine. Is what he's saying. Pattern your life after mine. Become like me. Do what you saw me do. Tell others the good news that you heard me telling them. About how God forgives their sin through the sacrifice of his son. And by the way, in this vein, you may have noticed I skipped a crucial part of the back and forth. So it wasn't just... Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yes. Do you love me? Yes. But each time and three times, notice verse 15, when Peter says, I love you, Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
And then in verse 16, he said, tend my sheep. And then in verse 17, he said, feed my sheep. And again, I think too much distinction is made between like, oh, is it feeding or tending? Or is it sheep? Or is it lambs? Or is it a flock? And it's just like, Jesus is saying the same thing three different ways. As you may, like parents, you're telling your kids something and you, you may not repeat the exact same words, but you, kids know, mom's finding a new way to tell me to do the same one thing. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, feed, tend, shepherd my sheep. And if you're like, wait a second, like, what is he talking about? Because Jesus was a carpenter and then he was a rabbi. At no point was Jesus ever a shepherd. But you may recall John 10, where Jesus actually said, I am the good shepherd. And he said, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is what Jesus has just done a few days earlier, is he has laid down his life. He has died so that the sheep live and are protected but then he says this in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so I think in that context, the, the sheep, the flock, the lambs, are clearly a reference to the church of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to all who will eventually follow Jesus in faith and say, you are my Savior, you are my Lord. And Jesus is saying, I'm ultimately the shepherd over all of you for all generations in all places. But notice what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, like as I go away, I'm calling people to shepherd my church. I'm calling people to and it's a word, it, these two words mean stuff like this, like feed my people, nourish my people, care for them, guide them, protect them, be willing to lay your life down for them. And this is why I say the last point is following and feeding because following and feeding are connected. Like what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means I give my life for the same people for the same priorities, for the same causes that Jesus gave his life for. And just to step away from Peter for one moment, like we hear all the time as pastors, like, I love Jesus, I love God, I'm just not into church anymore. And usually that's coming after, and I'm not making fun of this, it, it usually comes after a season or a sharp instance of pain. Like here was this believer, here was this spiritual leader, a pastor, a, a teacher, a small group leader, a coach. And that person or this whole organization hurt me deeply or they just seem off. Like I read stuff in the Bible and then they're doing this completely different stuff. And like this seems to be the central message of the Bible and they're talking about something different and it just seems crazy um, okay, so then find a different church that, that isn't like that. But the idea of just giving up on Jesus' family, Jesus' sheep, because you're hurt. Like, here's, Peter, or here's Jesus coming to Peter, and he's like, do you know what it means to follow me? It means to give your life, to give your time, to pour your energy into nourishing and loving and caring for the people that I care for. And I think this is so amazing that, that not only is Jesus not like, I'm done with you. You had your chance. I brought you into my inner circle, Peter. You were, 
you were there on the mountain of transfiguration, if you know that story. Like, I brought you into the most inner circle of my life, not just the, not just the thousands or the hundreds or the 12. I brought you into the three of Peter, James, and John. I took you up on the mountain. The Father spoke. You saw me changed into this glory that I had from all eternity past. And it was a blip. It was a moment in time. But you've seen things that hardly anyone on planet Earth has ever seen. And you walk away. I'm trying someone new, Peter. And that's probably what many of us would do. And it's incredible that not only is Jesus not done with Peter, but when Peter goes away and he's like, I'm a failure. I got to go back to the thing I know. I got to provide for my family. I'm going to go fishing. And his friends are like, yeah, uh, us too. Like Jesus pursues him to a different city, to a different region of the country and shows up in the wee hours of the morning. So like Jesus has already been like, I mean, he's like the hound of heaven, as who was it, C.S. Lewis or somebody called him. Like just pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. I will find you to forgive you. I will find you to repeat this story of the fish and the call and the I have a purpose for your life and I have a commissioning and I've got power for you and I've got a message for you to share. I'm not done with you. And what's incredible and, and so encouraging, like we have the book of Acts which a lot of it's about Peter, especially in the early chapters. Peter's the guy that preaches at Pentecost 50 days after Passover. And it's just like, I don't care what you do to me. Everyone needs to know that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. You killed him. He raised from the dead. And now there's life in his name to anybody who comes from him. Even if you participated in murdering him, there's life for you. There's forgiveness for you. There's purpose for you. And he's just like completely unafraid. And you're like, how, how did that happen? That he goes from this courageous guy whacking off a soldier's head and the guy ducks so he gets the ear instead. And then he's so afraid and now he's bold again. And I mean, First and Second Peter are some of my favorite books of the Bible. That It's like a pastor, a shepherd writing to other shepherds. And he's like, man, care for the flock that God has put you over. Like nourish them, love them, give yourself humbly for them. Like not to make a good reputation for yourself, but to make much of Jesus and just show people like God loves them. And I think like when I read First and Second Peter, I'm like, man, this, these are the words of a broken, restored man who can speak so tenderly, but so firmly because he himself has experienced this failure and God's forgiveness. And I think what's amazing is that as we look at the story, Jesus is not sitting back like, okay, we talked in the upper room, Peter, about how you are a colossal failure. So get your stuff together. And when you're ready, come and we'll have a conversation. And I think that's often how religion treats our relationship with God. It's like, yeah, we know we're broken, but clean up your stuff, get to church, read your Bible and pray every day, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll grow. And then eventually you can be like, look, God, I cleaned up my life. And he's like, eh, okay, well, I still see some stuff you don't see, but you're pretty good. That's not the Christian message at all. Peter's like, I'm done. I'm a failure. I've wrecked it. And Jesus goes to him in this restoring, redeeming grace. And it's actually grace in Peter's life that produces the repentance. It's grace in Peter's life that produces a deep level of trust. It's grace in Peter's life that produces boldness. One commentator says, after this, Peter was never the same. Gone was the presumption. Gone was the arrogance. 
Gone was the independence. Gone was the self-reliance. In their place was the power of God freely coursing through a broken, humble man. And it was awesome. And it's kind of like if you know the Chronicles of Narnia series in that first of the five, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where like Lucy kind of stumbles through the wardrobe into Narnia, comes back, is like, y'all got to come and see this. And they're like, okay, you're crazy. But then they're playing hide-and-go-seek later, and they all kind of stumble in there together. And Edmund, like the middle son, like meets the White Witch and is deceived. He actually betrays both his family, his siblings, and Aslan, who's like the, the Jesus figure. He's the lion. He's the king of all of Narnia. He betrays them. And he is actively betraying them when Aslan the lion, like, goes to him in grace and is like, I will lay down my life for you, the traitor, the denier. I'll be killed so that you can be forgiven. And you see in that story, like, Edmund's life, like, the repentance that he works through and the trust in Aslan and then the boldness to become one of the kings of Narnia like representing the kingship of Aslan over the whole thing. Like all of that boldness, all of that courage, all of that trust, all of that brokenness and repentance flows out of the grace of Aslan. He doesn't ever earn it. And that's our story for all of us. And I want to just close with these two very simple applications. One, one is for you kind of personally, individually. If you're looking at yourself and saying like, I'm the failure. I know my story. And, I mean, we're all failures, so we can just get that on the table, right? So, like, we're all sinners. We're all broken. We're, we're broken in different specific ways. We've committed different specific sins. We have certain specific weaknesses that may be different from other people. But, but we're failures in one sense of that word. But what you need to understand is, like, God is not sitting here as a father and just, like, perpetually perplexed and disappointed and just, like, man, how could they Oh, well, you know, no, God loves you and God pursues you. God has a purpose for you. And I think even if you have repeatedly and you would say catastrophically failed, and you ever fail in the way you're like, ah, I, I knew better. Like I knew that's how I was going to fail and I did it anyway. Or I said it anyway. There's still mercy for you in the person and work of Jesus. Because the, the theme of this last Jesus encounter is basically Jesus is showing Peter. Jesus is showing me. Jesus is showing us. Your failures are no match for the God of all grace. Like your failures are no match. It's not even close. So friends, don't sit there and think through your failures and rehearse your own failures and be like, I could never be good enough. Like, just be like, okay, I could never be good enough. But here's this God of all grace who invites me in and makes me his child and has the forgiveness and the purpose and the plan like he had for Peter. That's one part, personal. And I also want to say, like, what kind of church will we be? Like, kind of sitting back like the Pharisees of like, we're not failures. We're awesome. We're, we're killing it. These people, those people. They're failures, and we don't fellowship with failures. Well, Jesus fellowship with failures. Like Jesus baked breakfast on the beach and is like, come, and my table's open. My arms are open. My heart is open. So will we be a church? Will we be a community? Will our gospel communities strategically placed around the city, will they be little mini communities that 
embody this heart of our Savior that's like, it doesn't matter what you've done. We will overwhelm you with God's grace for second and third and tenth and a hundredth and a thousandth chances because God's grace is greater than our failures. And our failures are no match for the all-consuming grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Um, So let this be a hope to you. Let it be an encouragement. If it needs to be a conviction, so you're willing to be like, okay, I'm going to stop hanging on to this thing and just be like, no, God can never use me. I'm a failure. And just release it to God this morning, now, and just say, God, you want to use me. You have this kind of grace for my life, this kind of hope for my life. I receive it. And I want to share it with other people and build that kind of community that shares it with other people.